We are awakening to the divine game with Betty Kovach, Ph.D. This is episode 145 on Alternative Health Tools podcast, where together we discover and share new alternative health tools and resources from alternative healthcare practitioners and experts. I think that like so many people in growing up, I I didn't find the different ways of looking at the world very satisfying. Uh, I, I really was in religion for a while. I mean, uh, all the children went to church, <laughs> and I loved it. And I remember loving stories uh, that were on the felt board. I don't know whether you've ever seen such a thing, but <laughs> with all of the characters there. And I think that the influence uh, I received from the stories about Jesus, the ethical, moral, loving way of life was a very good thing. But as time went on, I knew that I could not believe that I was... I was a person who had to experience something to know it. Hi, and welcome to Alternative Health Tools. This is your host, Kim Shea, on this side of the pond here in Southern California. Today is Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021, and I am so honored today to be able to speak with Betty Kovach. She is a PhD, an author, a professor, a keynote speaker around the world, and she has written two books, and one of them is called The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life, and she also has her more recent book, which is The Merchants of Life, The Consciousness That is Changing the World, and uh, she has so many reviews, so many recommendations on her site talking about how great this book is. But uh, this one that really struck me was uh, the book is a clarion call to reclaim the universal, unitary, and boundless state of conscious awareness. And if we are to survive the materialistic nightmare currently threatening our existence, this awakening is already beginning, but it's so necessary. And so, uh, Betty, I would really like to welcome you to the podcast and for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you have come into this? You know, I, I think that like so many people in growing up, I, I didn't find the different ways of looking at the world very satisfying. Uh, I, I really was in religion for a while. I mean, uh, all the children went to church, <laughs> and I loved it. And I remember loving stories uh, that were on the felt board. I don't know whether you've ever seen such a thing, but mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of the characters there. And I think that the influence uh, I received from the stories about Jesus, the ethical, moral, loving way of life was a very good thing. But as time went on, I knew that I could not believe that I was... I was a person who had to experience something to know it. I think there are people who believe very well, and it's a deeply uh, meaningful way of life for them. I couldn't do that. I wanted to know. I wanted to experience. And if there was a spiritual world, I wanted to experience it. And this, of course, is what eventually uh, led me uh, to shamanism. But long before that, uh, I was led to reading everything I could about uh, religions and where there was experience and what were the methods used to experience and so on. I was very much involved in that. So that took a long time and it wasn't until much, much later that I actually started studying shamanism. And I went to South America twice uh, to work with shamans. How interesting. So that was a complete change from the way you'd been raised. Yes, and as it is, I think anyone who's longing for experience is going to go in a direction that is not the way we were raised, because our culture has been very much structured, either by religion or by science, and the religious structure offered a beautiful view, I think quite incomplete, of the other life, uh, and one that was meaningful and purposeful. But science said, no, there's, we'll have none of that. There's nothing but matter. 
There's no meaning, there's no purpose. We are a fluke of nature, and when we're dead, it's over. And so here are these contrasting stories that I grew up with. And as I say in the book, I think I just swam in those two stories for a long time without really knowing that there's quite a difference. Uh, but of course, eventually, I really began to look at both stories. And, and then I began pursuing studies that would help me to know, could there possibly be something that could prove to me that there is something more than this dreadful scientific worldview. I knew this religion story was a, it was a fine story, but it there were no methods or no ways for me to experience the other world. So that was most of my adult life was searching both the science and religion and beyond into shamanism. Okay, and then in your in your book, you, I was able to download a chapter from your website, um, which if you're listening right now, I'll have the link for it in the show notes, but it's comlock.com, and it's K-A-M-L-A-K.com, where you can find Betty and all of her work. And I downloaded a chapter of it, and you were talking about the Middle Ages and the, the quest for the Holy Grail. And, I mean, you you really have been studying so much about stories and how they relate to our experience and our potential, it sounds like, and yes. our truth. Yes, that's, that's a wonderful way to jump into this, is that we really are shaped by the stories that we're told. Uh, if we go back just a moment to the science story, it's a very empty story. It's that we are really nothing. And even part of that worldview is that you can't change uh, matter. And of course, now we know through quantum physics, we just look at it and we change it. But the story, that I grew up with and that many people still hold to very fiercely uh, is that uh, we are nothing. It's just an accident and make the best of it, but there's no real meaning to it. That's a horrible story. But if we go to the, I mean, it's, what can we do? I think that so much illness and so much uh, pathology, we might say, and addiction and fanaticism, fundamentalism comes from being brought up with that story that you are nothing. It's just a mistake. And then the story of religion, uh, which also as I began to do my studies, I realized these stories have been inverted. They're not the true stories. And I, I have to say, how do we know a true story? How do we know a sacred authentic story from one that is not. And, you know, when you study mythology, you begin to see these structures, and they're similar all around the world. And what I came to realize is that the authentic stories are not just made up conceptually, they are actually a result of the organizing principles within our own psyche, within our own soul. And so we can recognize an authentic story from a story that is written out of lack of knowing or desire for power over us control. We can tell the difference between them because the, the, the story that is born out of us is the blueprint for our evolution. It will always be um, structured in such a way to help us to remember that who we are, to remember that we are immortal. The ancestors experienced this, they knew this, and the true stories was to pass this heritage to us, that we don't, the consciousness continues. We are immortal and we are divine. All of us are divine, everything is divine, and we're also creative. So th these true stories are, our blueprint for evolution, and we can tell them from the false ones. And I could give an example of a couple of false ones if you'd like. Please, please, yes. Yeah. Well, in growing up, I was told the story of the Garden of Eden and of a male god who was there who looked over everything, and Adam and Eve were in that garden, and there were many trees, and there was one tree that was called the tree of good and evil. There's really in the authentic story, it's only one tree, it's a tree of life. But at any rate, that was a story I was told, the tree of good and evil. And there was one, God was going to leave and he said to uh, Adam and Eve, now you may eat of all the fruit in the garden, except this one tree, the tree of life. 
Well, of course, as parents, we know that's exactly where someone's going to go, isn't it? It's a, <laughs> it's a kind of funny story, really. But uh, so, of course, uh, Eve uh, went to the tree, and the serpent was there. And uh, the serpent said, what God told you is not true. Uh, God evidently had said, you'll die if you eat of it. And that, that's not true. And uh, you really, you should eat of this tree because it will give you knowledge. You will know that you're not going to die. Well, of course, this is from the true story, isn't it? <laughs> that you're really not. Here we, but at any rate, she eats of it and she gives it to Adam. And when God returns, he sees that she has eaten of it and that Adam has too. And he, so when he asked them, it's really a dreadful narrative because Eve, uh, blames uh, the serpent and well I guess Eve blames Adam and Adam blames the serpent and God punishes all three of them it goes something like that I mean dreadful punishment that Eve is going to suffer in childbirth that Adam will have to uh, just work so hard from the earth to survive and a dreadful dreadful story it has nothing to do with the real story the real story is about the tree of life and it exists throughout the ancient world and in the book, I show one seal from Sumer, which is 2500 BCE. And that was certainly during the time that uh, early, I mean, before the Deuteronomist had cre constructed this story. And there's this beautiful tree with fruit hanging. And the goddess is saying, you know, it's like here, take of it, as is the god. And there was the goddess and the god who created the world together in the Hebrew tradition, and they offered this fruit. Of course, that's what it was for, to eat. And uh, so this is, is an inverted story, because when you eat of the tree of life, you have the experience of Christ consciousness, but that was a word that came later. It would be cosmic consciousness or universal mind in which we all live. And so here was an inversion that came about 621 BCE by the Deuteronomist, because before Judaism, the first temple tradition was a shamanic tradition, a shamanic uh, mystic tradition. And then 621, Deuteronomist came in and started changing the stories. So. Here is a story that I heard as a child, and I thought, why would a god be like that, tell you not to eat something when it's right there? And why would he, he punish you for wanting to have knowledge, knowledge of good and evil? Isn't that what we ought to want to know? And it just, it just was senseless to me. And you know, I think even those of us who didn't believe it, we're still influenced by that story because on many levels, it's telling us, you are controlled by a tyrant, uh, by a male tyrant, God, and jealous, <laughs> as we find out throughout the Old Testament, and vengeful, and so on. But it also is saying that you're not important. You're really nothing. In fact, it even says in Genesis that to dust you, from dust you come and to dust you will mm -hmm. return. And I'm always amazed that people like to use that at funerals. That's a dreadful thing, <laughs> you know. But it's telling us you are worthless. Mm -hmm. You must obey or you will be punished. And you are, have done so much wrong that uh, you're going to suffer in childbirth, one of the most beautiful mysteries we can be involved in. And in, in, in growing the food out of the earth, this wonderful, uh, healthy uh, relationship with the earth everything is made dark. That's an example of a negative story. And later on, when uh, the Jews who remembered this first temple tradition of shamanism, they created uh, the tradition, the Jesus tradition. And Jesus was a shaman mystic. And in the text we later find, the, ch the church forced to be, either to be destroyed or the monks knew they buried it so it wouldn't be destroyed. Jesus is a shaman. He says, I didn't come to save you. I came to remind you of who you are. Mm -hmm. And so again, when the church then took the story of Jesus, they inverted it into a God. We are all divine, <laughs> but here is a God you must obey and follow. And here are the rules and here are the teachings. So to be achieve salvation, somebody else has to do it for us. Christ had to die 
for us to be saved in itself is nonsensical. You know, how can someone outside us save us? And so here again, it's not to become the Christ, but to follow the Christ. And in the Nag Hammadi text, which were uh, Christian texts which are left out of the canon for very clear reasons, we are told Jesus makes it very clear we are not to follow the Christ, but to become the Christ. So that's two examples of very negative stories. Yeah, um, yeah, they are. Um, I remember when I was a child, I don't think that bothered me so much. I know what bothered me was the concept that we died and went to heaven and stayed there for eternity. And I think <laughs> I was like six or seven years old, and I remember coming home and telling my dad, that sounds horrible, that we just sit there thousand years after a thousand years staring at each other like there's nothing new to talk about that sounds awful <laughs> to me so I agree um, completely I thought that was dreadful too and that scared me <laughs> <laughs> what we now know with so many people uh, having near-death experiences and in my own experiences with my son is that they continue to create I mean it's a very creative place and the other world and many levels of it as Jesus says, yeah. in my father's house, there are many mansions. Yeah, I think many, many levels of the other world. And we can be yeah. very busy. <laughs> That's what I've read, too. Um, now, so you, you mentioned Christ a couple times in Christ consciousness. And I was wondering if you can address that, because um, a lot of people who are what you would consider, or they would call themselves uh, born-again Christians or fundamentalist Christians, feel like shamanism and New Age stuff is is not okay, and that you can't you can't have shamanism and love Jesus or or believe in God that those are two separate things even though as you pointed out shamanism is older than the hills so uh, could you define when you talk about Christ consciousness what are you talking about <laughs> yeah well that would uh, we could also call it cosmic consciousness okay uh, it's or universal mind it is that vast pervasive eternal intelligence or consciousness that gives birth to matter. We now know because of quantum physics that matter is not primary. It is actually created out of that consciousness. So when matter dies, that consciousness continues. And it is possible for us to have access to that consciousness. We're in it. We just have a valve that limits our behavior on a daily basis so that we can cook dinner and do all of the things we need to do. But if we can release, if we know techniques to release that valve, we can experience that, that vast consciousness that we all are. And once we experience that, everything changes. And so, we can call it Christ consciousness because I, there was a hidden tradition which Jesus taught, we are told, and it was this shamanic, mystic consciousness of going within and experiencing the Christ or the divine within. It is the divine consciousness that we all are. I like that. Let's... let's turn just a little bit towards um, this is a health podcast. It's an alternative health podcast. And so a lot of the things we're not just talking about this because it's just interesting to talk about. And it's, you know, it's just some fun thing to explore. The health of the world is on the line right now and the health of our souls, many would argue. Um, what does shamanism and what you are talking about have to do with the world and the survival of people. And as you said, that and somebody gave a review saying threatening our existence right now. What does what you are talking about have to do with that? Mm -hmm. That's a big, <laughs> that's a big question. And of course, very 25 crucial. words or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, once we, once we go inward and we know then that what we want to do is to to try to live by that knowledge that we have uh, perceived, experienced. And it's, it's uh, an experience of a loving, conscious creation. And it can only be understood by experiencing it. And when we do, of course, we're going to treat ourselves and everybody else different from the way we did before. Uh, when, we, when we really touch that heart of conscious love and 
and awareness that the universe is so vast and so loving and that yes there are there are laws the universe has laws and organizing principles our ancestors understood very well that in order to have health to live fully we must live by those laws nothing was more important to them and we begin to understand the laws in such a deep and meaningful way uh, and we see them in nature we can observe them in nature we begin to see nature as living and conscious on many different levels that we can relate to nature our ancestors wanted to relate to it it was seen as as uh, conscious uh, beings in a way so uh, if we know how to do that if we do that we we couldn't create a world the way we the way we are creating it now we wouldn't we would know we're all equal and we're all playing our own game uh, i can so remember when my little niece was here uh, years ago she was doing something and i said oh why don't you would you like to do she says i'm playing my own game aunt betty and i thought that's what we all have to learn we play our own game but there it's going to be in harmony with everybody else's because we're we're co-creating together so now we see that as a result, I think I could just start from there, as a result of this very negative worldview, which many people still believe in, and most of us are damaged to some degree by it, a belief in, in absolute fluke of nature and nothingness and no purpose, that people are suffering. There's a real pathology. And I think what we're seeing today in... in in the technology that is not shaped to aid the human and life development always. I mean, there are things that make life convenient and easier and so on. But if we think of people who are thinking, let's say, of artificial intelligence and transhumanism, they don't know, it seems, anything about the inner potential of this incredible consciousness that we're all able to experience. And so I kind of see that movement toward power and control uh, and uh, a kind of big agribusiness <laughs> to control the earth and that it's not focused toward health and human growth and development. And I think that's a result of a kind of incredibly negative worldview. And so what we, ha I think today, more people are learning about shamanism, mysticism, and ways of going inward and experiencing that reality. And they want to create a very different world. And I think that it's really growing so powerfully around the world. Uh, and I'm so impressed with with the young people and many people, you know, their interest in what they want to do. But we are now faced with the result of that negative worldview that there's nothing. And so there are plans of power and control and depopulation and, uh, and uh, a very negative uh, relationship with the earth, which I think, yes, if we have this inner experience, we can see what needs to be healed and see it as a, a tremendous illness, a, a pathology. I think Western culture is a result of that pathology of always going outward and negating nature and our own selves. And the consequences are violent and now very, very dire. But you see signs that people are reaching towards changing. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Is very much saying? so. Okay. So there's hope. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yes, I definitely. I mean, when I was in college even, I never even heard the word shamanism. <laughs> mystic I'd heard of, but I didn't know what it was all about. And actually, my route to understanding that more was Carl Jung. I uh, dated a young man who had just gone to Andover Newton, and he had a party and with many of his friends and their girlfriends, and they were all talking about mathematics and physics and Carl Jung, and, and I, I just kept quiet <laughs> and listened. 
And but I started reading Carl Jung. We went into his library. I found a book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, and I think the Individuated Self, th those two books. And I thought, well, I'm searching for a soul, so this is the book for me. But so I really, for years, I really paid attention to my dreams and wrote about them. And, uh, and then it went from there. And of course, Jung understood the need for experience rather than belief, or at least in, mm. in addition to it. So uh, I, I have seen so much since my college days and teaching. When I was teaching in the 60s, there again was a great, in 70s and 80s and on, but I mean, that was a great awakening uh, with students. Then it kind of died down and became something else. But I think now is this similar time, and there is such an awakening to understanding the world and the meaning of it, and what are these other dimensions? And as you said, you need to experience it. Is that, are you talking about, for example, like have someone tell you something, but to practice a shamanic journey or go on a vision quest or to just experience an altered state of consciousness. Is that what you're talking about, that people need to experience so they see for themselves that it's real? I think whatever way that comes, you know, okay. it can, can be through meditation, it can be being out in nature, it can be doing a loving act with yourself in nature or at home, whatever, in which your mind is free and not bound down, you know, by that valve, by those, uh, principles that we've been taught from the outside. Uh, some people being in nature or some people running athletics, sometimes they mm -hmm. experience. And I think that it's whatever way it comes is that we can be open to it. Uh, for many uh, of our ancestors, it was rituals. And we know now that in doing many of those rituals, they created a repetitiveness, which actually we know now created a slow wave through the brain that integrated the various brain components and actually helped to have that larger vision. With some, for instance, the San people in South Africa, it was dancing. I mean, for at least 65,000 years, they have known how to trigger that release from the valve and that experience of this vast consciousness, cosmic consciousness. And the few who are left are still doing it. So. It's it, many uh, of our ancestors for tens of thousands of years used sacred plants. And uh, during the 60s, uh, students or other people used, young people used those, so often not knowing exactly what in the world was going on. Mm. Uh, it was a real crashing through. Uh, and then later they began to learn more about uh, our ancestors' use and how to use them in a sacred way. And uh, certainly many of the quantum math, not many, some of the quantum mathematicians and scientists had used uh, sacred medicine and that helped them to see the universe in a way they had never seen it before. Mm. And so that enhanced their study. That's very interesting. I, I know people are excited about quantum physics right now. And I can't say I fully understand it, but um, I oh, know that either. a lot of people feel it's it's validation for what they know about the universe and our connection to it and uh, what, what we're capable of, which is really exciting. Yeah, I don't understand it either. <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> I was you did. One doesn't have to. But you know, scientists are talking in a way that helps us to understand but certainly that there are many dimensions of reality and that uh, they're just so, I think, I love what Paul Levy said. He's a Buddhist and uh, uh, therapist and writer. And he said, quantum physics is our dream. It's our dream for our, for our salvation, you might say, for our, mm. our time. It's a dream for healing. And I think it really is because we've been a very scientific culture uh, and we believed whatever scientists have said. And so we need to have science validate that I'm not crazy. This really is possible. And that's what quantum physics does. It's, it helps us to know the universe is so vast and complex and multi-layered. And when in the early part of the last century, scientists began to realize what they were onto, they started 
reading these ancient uh, mystical texts because they realized that they could only find an answer there, but they couldn't. And it's only been in about the last 50 years that scientists independent of each other around the world have been making huge breakthroughs and helps, uh, many people still don't know, even probably quantum physicists, but there are those physicists who do know, who do see these interconnections uh, and it's it changes everything. But I would like to say just one thing about science is that, um, this shaman, you said shaman has been around for a long time. Yes, probably 40,000 BCE. It started emerging all around the wow. world. <laughs> That's a long time. Mm. And uh, they certainly uh, knew how to trigger those altered states of consciousness so that people could experience within themselves that divinity and eternality. And... Um, so they always tried to understand it, of course, scientifically. So if it was allowed to develop long enough, it merged into science too, because science is just another way of understanding the cosmos that we experience in an altered state. And so there were, uh, as I say, as I talk about in Merchants of Light, there were certainly those cultures that were shamanic, the sand culture, the cave cultures, the Egyptian culture, the first temple tradition in Judaism, and uh, the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers. And then the church put a halt to all of that. And But then 700 years later, there were the rebirths of that tradition in the uh, higher, uh, the high Middle Ages and in the Italian Renaissance, and then also in the Rosicrucian and in the German Romanticism, and then today. But I want to jump back to the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, they called it. That was at 1600. The church wiped it out in 1620. These people were, it was all the way from London into Bohemia uh, and through Heidelberg in Germany. There was a great uh, movement all the way from London to Prague, today Prague. And there were all of these underground traditions that had developed to keep alive the shamanic mystic tradition of alchemy, hermeticism, Kabbalah, mystic Christianity, and so on. They were all, the Rudolf was Catholic, but he allowed all of these traditions to come there and study and mingle. And also in Heidelberg was a center uh, of engineers and uh, mysticism. I mean, it was just an amazing time. But in 1620, that was totally wiped out by the church. Now, people, the scientists and mystics who were part of that, they all had to tuck tail and be gone. But many of them were a part of the Royal Society for Science and that developed in England in 19, I mean, in 1660. So they were, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment was destroyed in 1620. In 1660, the Society for Science developed in England. But that was after they had destroyed this movement in Prague, Bohemia, and then the Thirty Years' War came between the Catholics and the Protestants. And when that was over and the Society for Science developed, you could not study anything but matter if you wanted to live. And oh. that's the root of modern science. That's why. And we, I mean, it, isn't it, to, I always feel I have to tell that because we can't blame scientists. They were, and some of those scientists had been in that earlier movement to enlighten the whole world, to help them to know intellectually about matter. And they were the ones who gave mathematics to study matter and also to know deeply within our own spiritual Christ consciousness. So when they went there, they had to keep quiet and uh, do the best they could. They're called the Invisible College. <laughs> These people who wanted to bring enlightenment, wholeness to us, uh, health and wholeness through uh, the knowledge of the inner and outer worlds. So they could only study the material world. And then after generations, scientists were saying there's nothing but matter. Well, they didn't even develop the tools to study consciousness, you know? So it, it was, but at any rate, that's how we came to this dreadful, we now know, incomplete, inaccurate worldview that has just about destroyed us.
But it hasn't. Wow. <laughs> We're still no, alive. It hasn't. it hasn't, and we have hope, so that's good. Um, let's see. Um, let me ask you some of your questions that you provided because I think it would be helpful. So you talk about um, what is the connection between the or the relationship, the new, newest discoveries, the relationship of the brain, mind, and heart? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, our ancestors knew that the heart is part of the brain. I mean, they knew, at least in their terms, that we had to think through the heart. And we now know that the heart is a brain component. It gives more frequencies to the brain than the brain gives to the heart. And it is through the heart that we open to altered states and the cosmos. So uh, there is an organization you may know of at HeartMath, which has studied this HeartMath, and they have all kinds of tools to help uh, the mind to uh, work with the heart. And it's, it's very, their studies are very interesting. Sometimes students who were having, young people who were having trouble in school, maybe they were a little too aggressive or they weren't able to learn things. When they had this training at HeartMath, they were not aggressive anymore and their scores went way up. So it's when we go through the heart and feel, you know, our culture has been that old idea, well, I don't care what you feel, I just want the facts, <laughs> which in the, in the ancient cultures, that would have been heinous to even say such a thing. For instance, in the Egyptian culture where they, had this, they were profound visionaries in, at the early stages of their culture, and they knew that if we cannot develop our ability to feel, we can't develop a culture, that we have to feel, and feeling is a way of knowing. It's kind of interesting in the women's movement uh, decades ago, it was always a different way of knowing <laughs> and that they talked about. And it is through, through the heart, through the body, through feeling. Feeling helps us to understand some things that we couldn't understand otherwise. And our ancestors knew that. So now we know that in the uh, spinal cord, that old uh, serpentine energy, <laughs> you know, the, that, that we need. We need very much to drive a car, do whatever we're doing. Uh, but that flows through all of the brain components. And then, and then it, that flows into the heart. So it's that circular movement from the reptilian brain through the various uh, brain components and the frontal prefrontal lobes and into the heart and then circles back. Now, if we want to control a person, the way we do it is through fear. Make a person be very fearful and the energy goes back to the reptilian brain to protect itself. And it's very hard to think clearly if we are being infused with fear. And we see that every time someone's trying to get us to do what they want us to do, just make them fearful. In fact, in, in uh, the Nuremberg trials, when they asked uh, one of the Nazi leaders, how did you, how would you be able to get the people to do this? I said, it's easy. You can do it anywhere, anytime. Just make people scared to death, so afraid, and that you have the answer. And so, but that's, we now know that we want, I mean, the reptilian brain is important, but only for certain moments. And then we let the flow go forward again through the heart. That plus the fact that we didn't even know that the heart was more than the organ that pumps blood, that it opens us to the heart of the cosmos in a way. And so the, they always teach at HeartMath, you know, when you meditate or you're thinking, uh, imagine that energy going into the heart, into the heart and out to the universe and the universe coming in. And, and it really, it, it is a helpful meditation. Yeah, I'll have to. I will include the link for that in the show notes so people oh, good, can find good. more information on that. Yeah, that sounds very valuable. Um, what What was the purpose of the great mysteries of the ancient world? Well, that was uh, a continuation of the shaman mystic tradition. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. Oh. I need to cut you off. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I thought you wanted to say something. Else. Well, no, it was. No. <laughs> these were mystery schools, and people were trained. I think in the Eleusis in Greece, they probably were trained for two years before, and many people 
went, I mean, the men, women, and various levels of society, that they would go to the mystery school in Eleusis. And there were various rituals. They also drank uh, a, a particular liquid, which was a mind-altering liquid. And it was said that anyone who experienced that ritual would never fear death again, because they would know that consciousness continues. And they, the Greeks felt that that mystery school was the very core of their existence, that it gave hope and meaning to the world. And they felt that if they ever lost that, they would lose civilization. And they did lose it after uh, the church took, uh, became the church, Roman church, after a while. There were a lot of things bringing about these disasters, but the church, of course, was intent on getting rid of any system that wasn't its own. But the mystery schools were in Egypt. They were many places in the world. And they were for that purpose is that, you know, we get all carried away with life and we stay within this limited consciousness, which is fine because we couldn't live life without it. But we must always remember, we've got to loosen it up and allow that consciousness to experience itself and know that we don't die. We're not, we are immortal and that we're all divine. And that if we live by these principles, we can have joy and, uh, and and love and life that's those two things right there are so important to have love and joy and i think a lot of people might say they don't have that so that's is, true yeah which is sad what i'm finding interesting about some of the things that you're saying is that these things were universal mm-hmm. and we didn't have the internet or cell phones or way to contact people but it was bringing up is what you're saying at the same time, essentially, in different places all over the world, these types of studies and the way of living life and and being aware of a, a higher consciousness and an eternal life. And it's very interesting that that was, it was just as common, I guess, to people as that we can breathe, is that we also have all these other connections and abilities and that they were being kept alive all over the world. It's, it must, <laughs> I mean, you've been studying it. It must be very interesting to find out so many cultures had this. Yes, uh, yes, and I really focus on the Western world because that's we are here and we need to do business with yeah. with what's going on in our world. But certainly throughout the world, uh, there were spiritual traditions, very powerful ones, and we see the development of Buddhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism in China, and so on. Uh, we didn't even know in the West, that we had such a tradition. You know, we always look to the East, go to the East, go to India, go here, go there. Mm-hmm. We didn't know we had it. And now, thanks to scholars who have discovered this, that we know that the cave cultures were a shaman, mystical tradition. And we know that the San people in Southern Africa uh, were they, as I said, they developed this thousands of years ago. They say, we know at least 33,000 years ago. And they know how by dancing and uh, chanting uh, that they achieve cosmic consciousness. And uh, there's a scholar who wrote a lot about that, Bradford Keeney. And when he told them, you know, there are people in other parts of the world who also experience this vaster consciousness, but they achieve it by sitting in a certain position alone. And the sand were just, oh no, alone? It was sad because they dance with each other and they trigger that consciousness through a communal, Uh, relationship. And also, this is an interesting thing, that they say that they can make little arrows or needles from this energy as they experience this tremendous conscious energy and throw it at someone. And it will hit them. It can hurt. But it's like it can ignite a kind of consciousness in them. And uh, I've, you know, in, in the cave, uh, paintings, you sometimes see people wounded with these needles, 
I, I think that's what's happening. Certainly the sand people did it. They were around the same time, and it was a shamanic process, which we've lost. Well, in India, they do talk about Shaktiput, is that the master will touch your third eye or uh, hit you with a, uh, a feather. <laughs> but uh, someone said to me when he read it, who is from India, he said, well, this is, this is the Shaktiput of all times. <laughs> to have the arrow of energy that go, would go to the person and kind of awaken them. We need some of those arrows <laughs> today for sure. And, uh, yeah. But at any rate, they were, and that was, yes, it, all around the world in 40,000 BCE, people began to do these rituals and shamanism developed. So um, I think that wherever people go inward, then they experience that. And so we can have different uh, cultures experiencing the same thing in their own terms. And so it developed in the cave cultures among the San and in Egypt, but a lot of that was lost. Egypt may well have been, and we are told this, uh, that Egypt actually developed a complete sacred science, that each of their temples was built to attract certain cosmic energies, and that not one temple, temple is the same, and with all of the temples together, we have the complete sacred science of the cosmos. And one temple is built um, as the cosmic conscious man, according to Schwaller de Lubitz, who was a great scholar. The Egyptologist, of course, paid no attention to him because they looked at it from an evolutionary, uh, a kind of misunderstood evolutionary perspective and materialistic perspective. They couldn't see what was there. But now, for instance, Jeremy Nadler has seen that the pyramid texts are actually shamanic texts. And he has a book about that. And Alison Roberts has written just profoundly on rituals that uh, the papyri and also the temples now uh, walls are more revealed than before. And you see these really profound rituals to trigger that consciousness and to also trigger a consciousness of being on the other side and merging with death so that we know that death and life are merged. And when the Pharaoh comes back, he's able to rule Egypt because he embodies both birth and death, which is the life process. I so see. it's just profound ritual. So uh, yeah, they were, whenever we can go inward, we come up with it wherever we are in the world. Yeah, that's really very interesting. It's just like a drive that we have um, let me see what else I want to ask you here, because there's a lot. Like I, I asked you before we even started recording, if you had six hours, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know so much. Um, so what is the message? You have a question here. What is the message of the mystics that is returning today? Well, I think it returns in, in quantum physics. Um, okay. It's, it's the message that we've been talking about of who we are. As Jesus in the Nagamati text said, I, I came to remind you of who you are. And I think that uh, shamanism helps us get in touch with who we are. And you know, if you study with shamans, you may in the beginning uh, have an experience and you don't quite, uh, it will work on really little details in our lives that we need to work out, you know. Now, I uh, was interviewed by a person the other day who told me that he had been an addict for 18 years and that he had been in prison. And he said, I knew that he had been sober for a very long time, and he's been doing this incredible work now. And he said uh, the way that he stopped was that he worked with sacred medicine once, and he had an experience that changed his life. And he said, I have never wanted to use uh, any kind of drug sense. Not once. I have no desire for it. And I think some of the sacred plants are being used in that way. They were used, LSD was used earlier uh, on the east coast of, of the states uh, with patients who were dying of cancer. And after they used it, they, they didn't have the fear of dying anymore. So it opens us up to our larger self, the larger story. 
of who we are, when we're so limited that there's just matter and there's just this life, then to die is hard. It's really asking a lot of us, you know. But if we know kind of something beyond that, then they could die. So I think there's been a lot of resistance to understanding about sacred medicine. And I think a lot of it comes from the so many people using in the 60s and they didn't know, you know. <laughs> and some of them were killed, as a matter. I had a student, a, a father, whose son had uh, was using LSD and in the vision he simply stepped off the roof that he was on of a building at Berkeley and of course he was killed. Well, one, it's awfully hard to open up to something that can cause a lot of, you know, you don't know and it has to be understood and used uh, sacredly, I think, in a sacred context. So, but I think once we know more about these plants on the earth, they're natural plants. Isn't it interesting that mm -hmm. if we relate to that plant, we create that relationship with the plant that something happens that could take us a lifetime maybe to achieve or maybe never. I mean, it's that, again, it's, I've had people say to me, well, I want to achieve whatever I achieve on my own. But I think in a way, do we ever achieve anything on our own? I think I couldn't write a paragraph without everybody who came before me. You know, I know nothing <laughs> except what I have learned from others. And, and hopefully I was born with some uh, potential to learn and desire to learn. But uh, anyway, I think that I am much more like thinking of the sacred medicine as, as a life gift from nature, that if you honor it and respect it and enter into relationship with it in a sacred way, that perhaps you can have a deeper understanding of the universe. And therefore, it's wonderful. But uh, it's hard in our culture to to find and create sacred spaces or to be aware of them, you know. <laughs> it's but But it's still a very valuable process. But there's so many other ways, too. Many people experience these things spontaneously. I think after our son's death, Ishwan, my husband, and I did have spontaneous experiences with him. I just, I think it, the sort of the heart was ripped open, <laughs> you know, to let the universe in. And, uh, but we also later on did work with sacred medicine, which opened such a vast, meaningful universe. And and our son Pishti was there. He wanted us to know he's he's still creating, he's fine. But he also wanted us to remember what the earth was going through and why we had been born and what was coming and how we might be able to help. And and so these were very valuable experiences. They sound incredible. I'm sorry I wasn't aware that you had lost your son. And so I'm very sorry to hear that. So well, you feel, you you know that he's there and that he's alive. You feel that, and you've had, it sounds like a very sacred experience with him, with receiving communication from him. And so you have that, like as you were talking about, you have the experience because you have it. It's not just somebody told you, your son's fine, he's right. with God. You feel it. You know it. Absolutely. And interestingly, uh Pishti, our son, was very much interested in that kind of thing. He was 20, and he was killed in a car accident. And it, interesting, the story is that my mother was killed in a car accident one year before our son, and then my husband, Ishvan, was killed in his native Hungary two years after our son. So there were three automobile accidents and three deaths within three oh years. But uh, with our son's death, uh, he had had, when he was 12, an experience in which uh, he, he was uh, in a trauma center, he said. And he said, I was up above looking down at my dead body. And then he said there was a, a space of darkness, and then I was on the other side, and I was in a horseshoe-shaped, not quite circle. I was at the top of the horseshoe. There were four boys on one side, four on the other. And we were looking across from me. He said, I was looking at an aura. There was a um, an eternal fire burning in the center, and I was looking at an aura of the tenth boy who would come. And we all knew, we were all waiting for him to come, and we knew that 
when he arrived, I would be complete because 10 is the number of completeness. Well, he was about 11 and a half, I think, at that time. And that dream seemed so profound and bothersome. And he said, what do you think it means? <laughs> and so we talked about it. But I, I said, well, you know what I talked about, other possibilities. You In puberty, you're going into puberty, you're becoming a man. It could be you're dying to the child. But of course, <laughs> when he, when he, he did die from a car accident, and he was in the trauma center for 13 days. But, uh, and then in the last year of his life, he had another dream that he, it was a, an accident. What a detailed dream, but basically he had an accident. I was there and he was going back and forth, out into space and coming back, going out and coming back. And uh, I even said to him, you know, if you choose to come back, you can come back whole and well. But if you don't choose to come back, be sure you come back for the body. Don't leave the body in that condition. And if it's your choice, we will accept it. And the funny thing is, that was a dream he'd had. He told me I was making co coffee in the morning, and he oh told me this dream. He came in, he said, oh, Mom, I really had a dream last night. And he told it, and he said that then he was uh, going out and coming back. And he said, and then I realized that I was not that body. And I remember taking hold of his hand and thinking, oh, thank God it wasn't you, which of course <laughs> it was him. He was mm -hmm. just in spirit looking at the body and realizing it wasn't himself. He wasn't that body. And then he said, I, I then went out into the cosmos and I passed suns and planets so fast that they popped as I went by them. And, but at any rate, we found he had written it down as I, he, he had always done with his dreams, and I wrote mine, and uh, and his girlfriend, we were going through his things, his girlfriend said, oh, Betty, look at this. And then I said, oh, that's a dream that he told me. So, And then I realized two years before his death, I was dreaming of his death, but I looked at it symbolically. And then his dad, who wasn't interested in this kind of thing, but he was very respectful of it, but he was in his office here at home, and suddenly he saw Pishti, car and Pishti's body superimposed on the car. And then he knew that he was dead because they're two different dimensions. And then he felt himself say, oh, that's right, Pishti. It's almost time for you to do that. Oh, and that, that was just so, he didn't know what to do with that. And Pishti answered and he said, that's right, Dad. I'll be out of the house for a little while. And then Pish was com Ishwan was completely unconscious of that dream until we got the call. We just happened to be here that afternoon when we got the call from the hospital. And he he tried to believe Pishti would live, but that dream kind of gave him that insight that he would die. And we didn't know what, he didn't tell me until after, of course, the he, Pishti had died, but uh, he didn't know what that meant. But after his memorial, that's when the visions began. And Ishwan, who had not, he used to say to me, I have 50 years to make up for. And he'd come into the study to get a book or, or he'd be going to work. And he said, it's like a tape recorder, this spontaneous just recording of everything, like he needed to remember it. And uh, so, but then over, my husband was killed two years and four months later. And, and, and then I had some experiences with him as well. But we had long experiences and detailed uh, with our son which I write about in my first book, The Miracle of Death, There's Nothing But Life. So, yeah, with, and before I'd always been trying to find out, experience, whatever, and I had experienced some things and had had some visions as well as the dreams who had guided me for years. But it wasn't really until Pishti's death that that breakthrough became so profound that I never doubted again. I mean, I know that consciousness continues. I mean, he knew things that, and would talk to my husband about them, that my husband nor Pishti had any knowledge of here on earth, you know? And so, and he, and he knew things about my life that weren't even significant, but he, he, he mentioned it to Ishvan, and I thought that was his way of saying, you know, you're not going crazy, <laughs> I'm really here and I'm, I know these things, so. But it was profound and I'm grateful grateful for those experiences because I don't have to believe I know finally wow. <laughs> you know? uh, you're very fortunate that way that's really nice um, hmm. what do you recommend for people what can people do if they're 
if they're reading and again you can you can go to uh, Betty's website at comlock.com and you can get her books and you can study you've got some videos on there as well um, what what can people do how do they begin to wake up if they aren't <laughs> knowing yet you know I think that uh, once we ask the question you know once we are interested in knowing uh, and our ancestors put that into a story of the labyrinth is that once we ask the question we're in the labyrinth and everything that's happening to us is a teaching and if we're interested we're already in that labyrinth and that uh, the classical scholar Carl Karanyi put it this way and I think it's so beautiful because this is a sacred symbol if we walk and we keep whatever is happening in life if just know we're open and we the presence of spirit is always with us because we want to know and we're open to that and we look at everything along the way and finally we come to the center our deepest self and as he points out so beautifully at the center we confront our deepest self the divine the cosmic mind not as other but as self and that's the great mystery throughout all of the mystery schools and shamanism is that that's and that life wants us to know when we're ready and I think we've suffered a lot in our culture because we couldn't find uh, the answers we couldn't we didn't know how to look for it. we didn't know what to do but I think today uh, so much is available that when we ask that question we're in the labyrinth and everything is a teaching moment and it will come I like that I know when I was about 13 I was starting to have dreams that were coming true and I felt like something was wrong with that I felt like that was wrong and I remember saying aloud in my bedroom I don't want this I didn't want to know what was going to happen I didn't want these kinds of dreams anymore and so they stopped they stopped for a long time but then they started coming back. And then once I became more receptive to it, then I am able to experience more, study more. And I think that's a nice point to recommend for people too, is that you're never too old to start learning about this. Oh, or as no. you say, putting yourself in a labyrinth, you, you're, whenever you're ready, life is ready for you. As they say, when the student is ready, the master appears, mm -hmm. you know, which is yeah. your own inner master, and that master will appear. And of course, I think that there are beings that that know us and love us and work with us and guide us. And I found that dreams were they were my guide for years, and I'm grateful for them. And I think every relationship, you know, is a way to spirit, the loving relatedness. But uh, I, I really do think when we are ready, that inner master, along with the others, <laughs> will appear and, uh, and we'll find our way. But we are really trying to work to help our culture to make it easier for us, to help us to know it from childhood how. I mean, as a matter of fact, I had uh, heard someone pointed out to me the other day, there's a school in England that teaches children to see without seeing. They blindfold the children and help them just with their deep inner sensing and intuition to know. And those children, it was a most amazing. I think there's we have so many potentials that we've neglected, ignored, denied, and I think now we're beginning to find them, and we're all in it together. You know, I I, I couldn't do anything without others you know and i could not have accomplished anything without others and so we're in it together and i think together we are trying to change our culture and our world and and to save it preserve it yeah, by being healthy very, ourselves as well as helping the earth yeah it's a very high calling right now it, it is and it's yeah. a very crucial time very very crucial time and maybe, as someone pointed out, we do our best work when we're right on the edge of the cliff. That's <laughs> yeah, true, under pressure, yeah. yeah. That's, that's unfortunate. Um, but maybe things will change permanently. Once we make this leap, then we'll all be ready to, to live differently and love uh, one another and ourselves in a better way. We can do it. Form. Yeah. We can do it. And with each other, we can do it. Yeah. I had, if I you don't mind my sharing, just a dream that I had a few weeks ago. I was uh, going to the beach 
and I was there at the beach and there were people in either direction as far as the eye could see. There was no ocean, but there was sand and there were all these people and it was packed full of people. And so many people were either wearing purple or putting on purple. And for me, when I have a dream about purple, it's referring more to the seventh chakra and it's it's a violet glowing purple and mm -hmm. i just remember being amazed at so many people who were oh, either that. there or in the stage of trying to have a higher understanding oh, that's so beautiful achieve, to achieve oh. a sense of a, a unity with everybody it was really it was a beautiful dream it was really a neat dream oh. and it's um can give you hope I love yeah. it. Now I have that hope too more. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, beautiful. And oh, to live in that world and have our children in that world. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, that's our job, right? And that's, that's <laughs> your yeah. job. And I'll, I'll try and follow and learn what I can. Our so, job. <laughs> yeah. So you have your, your books are available on your website, right? The, the, um, the Miracle of Death and the Merchants of Life, both of those people can get them from your website? Yes, or okay. any place books and ebooks are sold. Okay. Uh -huh. And okay. if you sign up for the newsletter of Comlock, then uh, a sample chapter of Merchants of Light, or it will be sent to you. Which I so. did, and I'm reading it, and it's really, your, your knowledge is just, it's, um, it's amazing because the, the breadth and depth of it, and you are tying everything that happened before to everything that's happening now. And it's so complete. That's what I like about it. It's such a complete understanding. And you know, wouldn't have it if there hadn't been all of those people. You know, I'm a, a, a comparativist really trying to bring it together. But I think of those individual scholars uh, who delve deep into each uh, subject and brought forth so much and i was trying to weave it together so i am so grateful for those uh, scholars who came before and also for the students that i had you know we taught i taught myth for 20 25 years uh, with these students and we were all learning together it was very exciting and uh, and i'm very grateful to them because we had lots of questions and and we tried to find the answers together and so i'm grateful for uh, that group <laughs> experience Wow. Well, I would like to thank you for coming on here today. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we close out? No. I, okay. We've said a lot. <laughs> we have. And really, I, I appreciate so much what you had to say. I did sign up for the newsletter, and I'm very excited to know more about you. And you're, you're a wonderful human. And I thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Um, for those of you who are listening, thank you for sticking with this. I hope you were as inspired as I was. And you can go to Betty's website at comlock.com. You can find her information there. And again, her name is Betty Kovach. And uh, there's two books that you can find and just a lot more information from her as well. And so I'd like to thank you all for listening and uh, for Betty for your time today.